Welcome to Clear Thinking Out Loud, written and narrated by Mark Tyrrell of Uncommon Knowledge. Hi, I'm Mark Tyrrell of Uncommon Knowledge, and welcome to How to Boost Client Motivation in Therapy, Three Ways to Use a Person's Sense of Identity to Help Them Change. How many psychotherapists does it take to change a light bulb? Only one, but the light bulb really has to want to change. Okay, now that's an old joke, um, maybe not a very good one, but its roots are planted in a long-standing belief about psychotherapy and client motivation, which seems to be true. But it's also true that a cunning, and I use the word advisedly, skilled therapist knows what motivates people to make the changes they want and can help generate that motivation and build it up in the client who may not yet really want to change. So we can help our clients get to the stage of wanting to change. Dancing with the stars. So years ago, I was called by the staff of a retirement home by the sea to help one of their residents, Margaret, who was in her 80s. And Margaret had suffered a fool while using her Zimmer frame. And this had really upset her, of course. So miraculously, the fall hadn't physically injured her. So she was perfectly physically able to walk with her Zimmer frame, but she wouldn't do it. She was trapped in her room. And in spite of all the staff's encouragement, she'd spent the intervening six weeks refusing to move about independently. And of course, with muscle, as with many things, it's a case of use it or lose it. And the longer she didn't use those leg muscles, the more risk there was that she wouldn't be able to use them. So Margaret had developed a sort of phobia of using her Zimmer frame, and she insists on being pushed about in a wheelchair, even though she could perfectly well use her frame. That's what the nurse informed me. And the nurse sounded exasperated as she said that. And the trouble is, she said, that Margaret just doesn't want to walk for herself. She's lost her confidence, but she doesn't want it back. She's not even trying. Zimophobia. So I was ushered into Margaret's room in this old people's home, and I found her sitting in an armchair and was graciously received in the style of a bygone era. This was many years ago as well, and she was pretty old. And we were both well aware of why I was there, but neither of us mentioned the zimophobia. Okay. I got the sense she didn't want to talk about it. And the metal walking frame stood upright on its four rubber feet in the corner, making me think of a bizarre angular idol mocking us mere mortals as it stood there like some relic. But I couldn't help but notice the numerous photos of a younger Margaret, a ballerina arranged on her table. And we started to talk about the life that she'd led. And she wanted to talk about that. She didn't want to talk about the Zimmer frame. And with perfect congruence, I commented on the grace that she showed in those pictures, on her poise, on the athletic femininity that she developed as a dancer all those years ago, and her eyes began to shine. Then I spoke in general about how some people just have a natural physical grace, and others don't have that. About how, about how the limbs of some people are naturally shapely, and if she'd permit me to say so, I could see that she had a naturally perfect dancer's figure. And she asked if I'd like to take tea with her in the communal lounge. And I said, well, yes. And she said, well, follow me. And she got up from her chair. She actually stood up. Uh, ah, you move like a born dancer, I said. And this, you know, she enjoyed that as well. And she did. 
And without a Zimmer frame, she said, yes, I was always a dancer. And I think once a dancer, always a dancer, I said, perhaps a tad sycophantically, but she loved it. She practically waltzed down the corridor, causing the jaws of the nursing home staff to drop like leaves in October. And we made our merry way to have a cup of tea in the communal area. And she hadn't been out of her room for six weeks. So awakening a difficult client's motivation to change is what we were what we're talking about here. I visited Margaret three more times in the retirement home. And as far as I know, she never used her Zimmer frame again, but continued to enjoy her dancer's figure, as I had reframed it. And we didn't once discuss why I was there or her phobia. But we both knew why I was there. I could have got all clinical and professional, been all appropriate and ineffective with her, or done a proper hypnotic induction. But why do something when something else works better? By reawakening her long-dormant pride in her self-identity as a beautiful, graceful woman, a woman who could move athletically, I also awakened her motivation to change. The fact that I was, at that time, a much younger man paying her attention and framing her as someone of movement appealed to her and was enough to make her want to change. And it might not have been right, you know, if it had been a younger woman that I'd done that with. This is not a random approach. It's based on three natural principles. So here are three techniques I used to motivate my client to change. Firstly, appeal to their point of pride. So we're often cautioned about pride. You know, it comes before a fool, they say, and uh, which is ironic with uh, what Margaret was suffering from. But it frequently is what motivates people to do any number of things, from achieving something in order to feel good to defending an incorrect belief in order to avoid feeling bad. So if someone is or has been proud of something, legitimately proud of something, nationality, skill, talent, achievement, whatever it may be, we can link what they need to do with that point of pride and use it to help them want to want to change. And this can be done either covertly, as I did with Margaret, or overtly. I both protected Margaret's pride by not being the therapist. After all, it was other people who'd asked me to help her. She hadn't asked me to help her herself and appealed to it to get her up and moving again. I also appealed to pride while working with a man called Arnold, who told me how his daughter, who died a year before, used to call him Daddy Lion when she was little. And she died at the age of 20. And now his business had failed because he was in so much grief, and Arnold felt he'd lost all his drive to care for himself, for his wife as well, or about trying to rebuild his business. We talked about how a young person might think about a lion. And he acknowledged that his daughter had seen him as powerful and strong. So it had been a point of pride for him. And while he was in hypnotic trance, I talked to him about how he might truly honour his daughter's perception of him as a proud man of strength by allowing his lion nature to express itself once more in his life. And this appealed strongly to him, linked as it was with his cherished daughter, who was no longer with us, and a feeling of who he'd been before and who he really was. And he described it how he, uh, as how he used to be. And I fed this back to him as who you really are. So you can see how the principle of pride appealed to both Margaret and Arnold's cases. And talking of principle, you can also do the next thing. So number two, appeal to their point of principle. A husband and wife, who were both very politically liberal university history professors, came to see me to quit smoking. 
And they both came at the same time, or one session after the other, I think it was. And they knew consciously that they'd fallen prey to subconsciously associating smoking with a counterculture identity, but this wasn't enough to help them stop. As we talked, it became clear they both had a very real passion for fighting what they described as the evil of big business around the globe. So it was easy. I spoke about the con of smoking, the injustice of it, and the way generations have been duped into being turned into ash by the very thing being turned into ash by them. I went on about the tobacco industry and how Sigmund Freud's nephew, Edward Bernays, the inventor of public relations and and the use of psychological techniques in marketing, had purposefully set out to link smoking with being cool and gotten a generation of women hooked on smoking by linking it to women's emancipation. And during their hypnotic inductions, I didn't mention smoking, but the smoking conspiracy, and talked about how, as people wised up, big tobacco would have would have to find fresh new smokers who hadn't yet seen through the globalization of poisonous commerce that was pro- proceeding apace in developing countries, even as we spoke. And because I said the tobacco industry needs people to selflessly sacrifice themselves to maintain all the globalized profits it generates, I didn't tell them they shouldn't smoke, but I did totally demolish any claim smoking may have had of being ex- an acceptable part of their self-identities. So both stopped on principle. They couldn't, they could no longer square it with who they felt themselves to be as far as our identity was concerned. So if fairness, honesty, hard work, or protecting the common man or woman is important to someone, then use it. One nervous flyer who saw herself as fair-minded above all else was told during trance to be fair to the aircraft by allowing it to make the adjustments and noises it needs to do in order to fly especially through turbulence and just to do its job. So number three, appeal to their area of expertise. A lot of my clients know a lot more than I do about a lot of things, even if it's how a drug culture works or treatment for an illness they've had. Okay, what's their area of expertise? And most people take pride and enjoy sharing their expertise to some extent. So through discovering what your clients know a lot about that you don't necessarily know a lot about, you can use that knowledge and enthusiasm to help them change. For example, uh, what one of my teenage clients didn't know about online games wasn't worth knowing. Okay, And I know hardly anything about that. But he hadn't played any games for a while. And in fact, he'd stopped doing all the things that had connected him to community goals and life. He'd stopped doing real life stuff as well. Depression had made him withdraw from the very parts of life that ultimately make life worth living and feel meaningful. So I talked to him about how depression convinces people to think in all or nothing simplified negative or negatively biased ways about how it stops us getting proper rest from our sleep, even when it allows us to sleep, about how it makes us think in certain predictable ways and messes with what motivates people day to day, and about how, in a way, it needs to be outwitted or outplayed. When I asked him to describe what what makes a really great online game, he talked about the importance of collaboration with other players, letting them help you and helping them in turn. He also talked about having new challenges. Uh, it needs to be interesting. There need to be side quests, really difficult bosses to defeat. I confess I had to ask what a boss was. You know, uh, Different levels to conquer as you become a better player and so forth. I suggested life itself could be seen as a kind of a game. It's one way of looking at it. 
uh, not the only way, but one way, I said to him, I know very little about online gaming, but from what I've said about depression, and if you and I were to develop an online game to defeat depression, what do you think we'd include? What sort of bosses would a player encounter? How could they be beaten? And he proceeded to talk uh, a great length about how the beat depression game would work and look. And he, he got quite involved and quite engrossed in this because it was his area of knowledge. In effect, he described exactly what you'd have to do to get to the point of no longer being depressed. And he enjoyed playing the game of defeating depression while in a deep, relaxing trance. So we collaboratively merged our areas of expertise and developed a strategy for him linked to his sense of what he knew about. What motivation really is. So by linking motivation to change to a person's perceived sense of self-identity, the healthy focus for change can become merged with their sense of who they are. And this is what makes it motivating. The examples given here were, of course, tailored to fit the idiosyncrasies of the unique individuals involved. But the principle of appealing to a person's sense of identity is universal and timeless. So I hope you found that useful. I'm Mark Tyrrell of Uncommon Knowledge, and if you'd like to subscribe to my email newsletter, you can find it over at unc.com slash blog.